Well, this is Titus, the Titus 2 woman, lesson 2. We call this the Titus 2 commission. And so one of the things we want to continue doing is looking at this, this passage of Scripture. In fact, to kick it off, I'm going to read to you Titus 2, verses 1 through 5 out of the King James, just to, so we have that as a baseline. And these lessons are very critical. One of the jobs of a pastor and any preacher is to change the culture of wherever they're ministering. We do a lot of work in Africa, and one of the things you can see is the gospel is changing tremendous parts of Africa. I'm currently, well, I'm about to finish David Livingstone's autobiography, and when he was doing missionary work 150 years ago throughout most of Central and Southern Africa, he wept because he had maybe one convert in 22 years. And everywhere he went, he would preach the gospel and tell them about the Savior that loved them and died for them, and they would rejoice, and then the next day they'd go next door, kill all their neighbors, and sell them into slavery. And he wept because he said, how long will this continent dwell in darkness? Well, you fast forward 150 years, and the places we've been able to travel in Africa, you see the gospel has made a difference, and it's changed the culture tremendously. You're no longer butchering your neighbors to sell them into slavery to the Portuguese and the Arabs. You are now preaching the gospel and having churches on every corner. Uh, The job of the gospel is to change culture. And what we deal with as Westerners is a very feminist, pro-lesbian, anti-woman culture. And I jokingly say, if you're American, you're about half lesbian and don't even realize it. Mostly feminist because it's our culture. So we have to go back and emphasize what the Bible says about women so that you can operate according to your God-given design, which is tremendously more extravagant and beautiful than what feminism or westernization can produce for you. And we've proven many times that the, uh, the typical CEO feminist cannot hold a candle to the Proverbs 31 woman, no matter how hard she may fake it and try. So we're looking at the Titus 2 woman. We said last week the Proverbs 31 woman discusses the work ethic of a godly woman. The Titus 2 woman reveals what her heart and personality and character looks like. You could be a work mule like the Proverbs 31 woman. It doesn't mean you have the character or the grace or the poise that the Titus 2 woman has. I'm going to read this passage to you, though. Verse 1, Titus 2, 1. Just follow along with me. Uh, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be, uh, be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their children, to love their husbands, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and it gives us a good list of adjectives that help describe what maturity looks like to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to look at this curriculum now because we have a lot to work through and read through. Titus 2, verse 3 gives the qualifiers permitting a seasoned woman of faith to help young female believers. This passage tells us that young women ought to be trained by the older women. Now, the young versus old really has nothing to do with age. Because we could very well have a 25-year-old woman in Christ holding a Bible study training 60-year-old women who've just been born again. And some of you ladies that go into our jail ministries, you know, you're in your early to mid-20s and you're doing a bang-up job ministering to some of these older women who are in the jails. And that's perfectly acceptable. We have to understand the Lord is not interested in numbers as far as age. He's looking in maturity. You can be born again 40 years and still be carnal. You can be born again two years and start a church. In fact, our, our Irish friend, Pastor Gary Brown, was born again two years before he started his church. Or you can be born again 22 years and still not be more than a babe in Christ. 
So what we're looking for is maturity. We're not looking for age. Some cultures put age above everything, and that's a false culture. That's a false standard. We need to look for maturity and qualifications. And the adjectives used in Titus 2 give us tremendous adjectives we should be aiming for and even praying over our life. One of the cool things about faith and prayer is you don't even know how, to, how it has to work. You just pray it and it starts working. You just start saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm sober-minded. You don't even know how to get there. You just pray it and you get there. Lord, I thank you that I walk in self-control. You don't have to know how to get there. You just pray it and you start getting there. That's, that's the cool thing with faith. And uh, so we don't diminish that. You should be honest with yourself. And if you cannot say you fit the qualifications of verse 3, which is what we looked at last week, you should really limit how much you attempt to disciple and raise up young women of faith. It's one of the things that frustrates preachers is we see people who aren't qualified trying to lead. Because when, when bad leaders lead, people follow and crash. What we need is better people to rise up and lead the body of Christ. One of the things I pray for all the time is a higher caliber of preacher. I pray for higher calibers of pastors in our region, and I pray for higher calibers of preachers throughout our nation. We need a higher caliber, a higher class, a higher level, a higher standard, so people have something higher to aim for. Amen. In actuality, you may discover you are not a Titus II woman yet, and in fact, you are the one who is in need of a Titus II woman in your life. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough. Just because you've been born again 30 years does not mean you're a Titus II woman. Just because you've been around longer than anybody else doesn't mean you qualify. Same with men, the Titus II man as well. Just because you've been around here longer than anybody else doesn't mean you're a Titus II man. You, you mature at your own pace. And if you're not happy with that pace, run faster. Mature faster. Grow up quicker. Amen. Education and age alone do not qualify you to help others. Education and age alone, knowledge, we could say knowledge and age alone don't qualify you for anything. Except for, you know, if we had an award called oldest and most knowledgeable. But that doesn't mean you're worth following. And in the body of Christ, we're looking for people to lead. And other folks are looking to you to lead, so you have to grow up. Should you qualify as an elder woman in the Lord, commissioned by God and your pastor? I like to make the point there. If you're not commissioned by somebody more than yourself, you're not commissioned at all. Dr. Barclay makes a distinction. He said, if you're a five-fold minister and somebody knows it other than yourself, he makes that distinction. I also like to say, if you have a social media ministry, you don't have a ministry. If you're a ministry that uses social media, good for you. If all you have is a social media ministry, you don't have a ministry. You're a vagabond, a vagabond and you're self-promoted. Should you qualify as an elder woman in the Lord, commissioned by God and your pastor to help younger women, let us continue our study and see what you need to be teaching the younger women. If you are younger uh, in the faith, study these verses to see what the Lord Jesus would like to see in you. So every one of us, ladies and men, no matter how old we get, these are going to be qualifications and criteria we can continue to perfect and continue to produce in the generations under us. Every generation that is being discipled should go further than the previous generation. I'm reading a book right now on hermeneutics by some theologians, and he makes this, this powerful statement. He says, we can only see as far as we do because we stand on the foundation of those that were laid before us. And we need to be laying a bigger foundation so that the generation after us can see even further than us. Otherwise, what happens is the preceding generation, or excuse me, the, the next generation gets lazier and actually loses the ground we gained. 
Uh, that's one of the great complaints about the millennial generation, that they're lazy, that they don't know what their fathers knew or their forefathers, and they just want everything handed to them, want mommy and daddy to do it for them. This is not acceptable in the eyes of God. The next generation should go further than this generation. So Titus 2, 4, through 4 and 5 says that they, the elder women, may teach the younger women to be sober. So we got to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands. You have to be taught that. To love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Everything feminists hate. This is like the most anti-feminist two verses in the whole Bible. But as I like to point out, feminism is anti-woman. Feminism is interested in women acting like men. So feminism isn't interested in women being women. It's interested in women being like men. But God didn't make you to be a man. He made you to be a woman. So you can see how the devil gets in there and hijacks the thing because a woman who is a woman after God's design is a fearful and terrible thing to the kingdom of the enemy. But a feminist is the devil's delight. You know, fighting for, I don't know, whatever you want to do, fight for it. Why don't you just be what God made you to be and watch how powerful that is? Because I can't be a woman and I don't want to be a woman. I want to be who God made me to be. So I'm not fighting to be a, I don't know, a feminist, a manimist. I'm not a manimist. Manpower, hoo-ah, that's, that's foolish, silly, goofy. Uh, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Notice that when a woman doesn't walk these things out, her lifestyle will blaspheme God. When a woman is not sober, loving her husband, loving her children, discreet, chaste, a keeper at home, good, obedient, then her lifestyle blasphemes God. Pretty powerful verse. Blasphemy, and we're going to cover this as we go on with this lesson, blasphemy isn't just saying GD or JC, or, or cursing and taking the Lord's name in vain. Blasphemy, according to this verse and others in the pastoral epistles, blasphemy is a lifestyle where you make the name of Jesus look horrible, where you call yourself a Christian but live like a feminist. There's no such thing as a Christian feminist. There's the handmaiden of the Lord, which is one of the lessons we'll cover this month. There's a handmaiden of the Lord, and then there's a feminist, and there's nothing in between. And you're either tracking towards one or you're tracking towards the other. The Western culture wants you to be a feminist. Burn your bra, grow out, you know, buckwheat in the armpit, and just tattoo, uh, you know, your favorite uh, feminist quote on the back of your neck or your forehead or wherever you want to, you know, be awesome at and end up looking like a dude when you die. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's move on. To teach the following subjects for you elder ladies who we need to raise up, who the body of Christ needs so desperately. To teach the following subjects, you need to make sure that they are working in your life. It's only proper that you bear the fruit of them in your life as well. Even as James says, the husbandman or the husband woman, or I guess if a husbandman, that'd be a wifing woman. A husband man is a wifing woman. Husband is another term for farmer. That the farmer is first partaker of his own fruit. So you have to make sure you're always perfecting these criteria and qualifications in your own life. Number one, taken from our verse Titus 2, 4, and 5, is sober. Now, in the first five verses of Titus chapter 2, you see the word for sober or self-discipline or temperance used five times. Sober, self-controlled, temperate is used there, Titus, in fact, um, uh, verse 2 says sober, temperate. Those are two different words meaning the same thing, self-controlled. Verse 3 says not given to much wine. 
that has an inference of, inference of uh, sobriety and temperance. That may teach young women to be sober. Verse 5 uh, talks about being discreet. That's also another word for self-control. In five verses, you have five references to being self-controlled, talking about both men and women. That tells you the importance that the Spirit of God puts upon us to be self-disciplined and self-controlled in every area of our life. This has to be emphasized over and over again throughout the whole Bible because God knows you're, you're bound to an earth suit that has a sin nature in it. And flesh does not know moderation. Flesh does not know self-control. The West gets an F- minus when it comes to self-control. That's why we're the most overweight, the most sick, the most in debt. We hoard, we collect. We, we don't just have, if we're fornicating, we're not just fornicating with one person. We got 30 people on the line. We invented Tinder. We can't, we can't handle social media to save our soul. We don't know how to be. We, most Christians spend more time on social media than they do in their Bible. And that's why social media will send a lot of people to hell who were born again at some point. Because this day and age, whoever you're listening to is discipling you. And I'm watching more and more Christians cower to the middle school peer pressure on social media because they don't stay in their Bible. This is why the Bible emphasizes self-control so much. And as my favorite, favorite verse in Proverbs says, if you be out of discipline, put a knife to your throat. If you be given to self-appetites, uh, put a knife to your throat so you don't be consumed with everybody else's follies and fashion. Sober. This means to make sane or sober of mind, to moderate the mind, to discipline the mind. And so it goes, as your mind is disciplined, your body will be disciplined as well. Sometimes you have to just say, my flesh wants it, therefore I'm going to deprive it for a month. I gave some of you the Facebook challenge. Go without Facebook for a month. Just prove to me you can. Prove to yourself you can. What, what would happen? Would the world come to a halt if you stopped Facebooking for a month? Would anybody even care? No. One of my pastor friends, he called me up. He pastors in Texas. He said, Pastor Chris, I just, uh, I just became your disciple. I said, what? He said, I got off Facebook. I said, how does it feel? He says, I feel like a brand new creature in Christ. I feel brand new. He said, I feel clean. I feel holy. And he was one who had really entrenched himself into pastoring through Facebook. He has a great church doing a, a bang-up job, a tremendous job. He said, it got so bad, he said, my folks were going to the hospital and posting it on Facebook and expecting me to see it on Facebook and come and visit them because of Facebook. So when I got off of Facebook, I no longer saw what they were doing, and they would get offended when they go to the hospital, and nobody came to check up on them. And then they'd come and complain, didn't you know I was in the hospital? No, I put it on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. You still need to do the Bible. Those that are sick, call for the elders, not post on social media. Social media is the middle school for adults, except it's worse than middle school. In middle school, you would ask, what do you have for lunch? Social media says, this is what I had for lunch. I didn't ask. I don't care. Middle school was, where did you go for vacation or spring break? We went to Disney World. Social media is, I'm going to Disney World. I don't care. I didn't ask. Middle school was, what did you get for Christmas? Oh, I got some new Nike Air Max. Social media says, check out my new kicks. I don't care. I didn't ask. Social media is worse than middle school because nobody's asking. Except it makes people feel important. Why don't they already feel important? Because they don't have a walk with Jesus Christ. So you're replacing the importance through Christ with something as cheap as Facebook. It's good preaching. 
I'm fired up. I need to move on because we've got a lot of adjectives to cover this morning. And if they all preach like this, we'll be here till lunchtime. Women need to learn to be sober-minded. Amen, amen, amen. So do men, but this is referring to women. We've got to learn to control our mind, everyone. Learn to discipline your mind. That's one of the most powerful things you can do as a Christian is have a disciplined mind. This is a mind where vain imaginations don't last more than a moment or two. And you cast them down and curse them. This is a mind refusing to dwell on hurts, new or old. You can overcome a lot of trauma through a disciplined mind. A sober mind is not drunk with cares, worries, fears, or insecurities. Is your mind a disciplined mind? Every one of us has to constantly work on it. And just because you got something accomplished today, if you don't maintain it, a year from now, your mind will start to unravel again. We're watching women be attacked like never before, and it's always in their mind. The first attack of the enemy is with fiery darts, which if you study the Greek, we think of a dart as like a dartboard. The Greek is a javelin. So when the devil attacks your mind, it's not like a little pinprick. It's an Olympic javelin at your head. And so you have to be able to resist those thoughts on a regular basis with the shield of faith. So you as a woman and a man, but as a woman with this Titus 2 woman, you've got to have a disciplined mind. You, you don't squirrel. You don't have a mind that just squirrels away and just spins, 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 and just like the fish is getting away or something. You keep a tight line on your mind. You don't, you don't have permission to daydream. In fact, Ecclesiastes says, Basically, it says daydreaming is useless. Fear God. That's, that's the gist of it in the New English translation. I'll find it for you. Anyway, basically, daydreaming is useless. Fear God. You need to have a tight restraint on your mind. It is an instrument to be used. It doesn't, it's not supposed to use you. Let's move on to number two, loving your husbands. What? You have to teach somebody how to love their husband? Absolutely. Quite a perplexing statement, but a wife must learn how to properly love her husband in line with God's word and not in line with the world's way. So much of romance today is just is, is discipled by Hollywood, and there's no reality to it. So many women today get married because they're lonely or they're afraid they'll die alone. So they're not even marrying for the kingdom of God. They're not even marrying for biblical purposes. Now, here's the most anti-feminist thing I could possibly say. You're supposed to get married as a woman to help your husband build the kingdom. That is the only biblical reason you get married. The first biblical reason. You marry because the man you fall in love with is so busy working for the kingdom, he can't get anything else done without help. And now you fulfill your created design as a helper. And then you get to have a friendship and you get to be fruitful and multiply, which includes sex and children. But if you marry because you're lonely, you're, you're weird. You need to fix the loneliness first. If you marry because you're horny, you, you got lust issues. You got to get your self-control working because marriage is not about sex. If you marry because you want a kid, that's not a good reason either. You marry the first biblical reason print, put forth in, in the book of Genesis is because he's so busy working in the garden, he needs help. It's not good for him to be alone. And two can put 10,000 to flight. That's the biblical reason you get married, not because uh, you like this guy and you don't want anybody else to snatch him up, but because you can see he's building the kingdom and he needs help, and you love him, and you want to help him build the kingdom the rest of your lives till death do you part. You have to be taught how to properly love your husband. Wives must be taught how to adapt themselves to their husbands. Again, this is not a very feminist statement, but I've never been accused of being a feminist Wives must be taught how to adapt themselves. That's what 1 Peter 3 says. Wives adapting yourselves 
to your husband, caring for him, encouraging him, praying for him, building him up and not tearing him down, not nagging, not griping, etc. In fact, Proverbs says uh, the naggings of a woman are like Chinese water torture. It's like a continuous dripping, drip, drip, drip. Sometimes a man just wants to go plug that thing, stuff a sock in it, drip, drip, drip. Many Christian women today have absolutely no idea how to love their husbands. None at all. Don't forget the uh, American church has a 50% divorce rate. So we've got to do something to fix that. You have to be taught how to love your husband. You have to be taught how to care for him, how to pray for him. The best way to start loving your husband biblically is to pray for him every day. If you don't have a husband but you want one, pray for that man who God will give you as a husband one day. And also at the same time, if you're single, a single woman, make sure you're eliminating all the burdens out of your life so that when the knight in shining armor comes along on his white horse, you don't pull him off with all your baggage. He can throw you up on the back of the horse and gallop into the sunset. Some of you, though, the horse may stop by and say, "Uh uh-uh. Don't eat. I ain't stopping. Don't stop pulling on my girl. I'm not. Go. Go. Let go. I am not that. You see her? You see all that luggage she's got? We are not hauling that. Keep riding, man. There's better women out there. I'll get you there faster. <laughs> Amen. We all have a little bit of baggage. It doesn't need to be like a yard sale kind of thing, though. Atlas van lines. Love their children. This is something else Titus 2 says about women. They have to be taught how to love their children. Now, there is a natural mama instinct, but in our culture, that's becoming less and less. Deuteronomy says a nation will start to devour its own children, and we do that to the tune of 65 million babies aborted in the last 50 years, to the fact that women use abortion as contraception, that almost every week in the news you can read about a woman trying to get rid of the baby in a dumpster or toss it in the woods or cruel, inhumane, sick, disgusting things. Women are having to be taught now what it means to really love their child and care for it. And those women who do have that natural tendency to nurture Hollywood and social media and psychology has come in and tried to strip biblical parenting away so that we're being taught to spoil your kids. And so you have to be taught what true biblical love looks like. Another perplexing statement, but most moms don't know how to properly show their love toward their child. You do love, but do you know how to properly demonstrate it? We teach our girls, you can ask them, why does daddy spank you? Because he loves me. Why does daddy buy you toys? Because he loves you. Why does daddy hug you? Because he loves you. Why does daddy discipline you? Because he loves you. They get it. They get that love looks like many different things. It isn't just the typical 16-year-old, daddy, if you love me, buy me the yellow BMW. That's not, that's not love. That, that's actually hatred. Proverbs says, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. So seven times the book of Proverbs says, spank your child. No times does America say, spank your child. We're living in a day where... We have to discipline our children discreetly. Thank God here in the South, we can still spank them in public. Whip them in Walmart. Whip them in Burger King. Just dare somebody. Call DCS. I dare you. This is my kid, not yours. This is still the South. We still shoot animals out our back window for sport, and it is a good day. (laughs) They may know how to defend their child, but raising and training the child in the fear and admonition of the Lord is another challenge altogether. So part of love is is looking at your child and saying, you're not just a a, a mini-me. You're not just a miniature version of mommy or daddy. You are a weapon in the hand of God. 
and I'm going to polish you and sharpen you for the next 18 years or the next 14 years or 12 years. I got two more years left to, to give you. And I'm going to make you something because that's what love does is it makes them a disciple of Jesus Christ set up to go further than mommy and daddy. If you're not doing that, there's a lack of love for your child or a lack of knowing how to demonstrate your love. Because a true love for your child, when you love Jesus Christ, true love says, I'm going to make sure I see you in heaven one day. And I hope you have more rewards in heaven than I do. I cringe to think about some parents die and go to heaven and keep waiting for their children to show up. And keep waiting for their children to show up. And then their children never show up. And they, they look at their spiritual clock and they say, Well, Lord, uh, surely my child would have died by now. I, I haven't seen them. And the Lord have to say, they, they didn't make it here. Well, I raised them in church. Yeah, you did. And you did the best you could. But um, they chose to go to hell and I had to let them. I can't imagine what that's like knowing your child will never be in heaven with you. Love disciplines children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And parents today have to be taught that. Because the new parents of today are millennials and some generation Xers, which I'm a generation X, and we're so secular, so humanistic, so progressive, we don't get what true love looks like anymore. We think love is you just let me go to hell and do what you want. That's not proper. Love doesn't just hold, coddle, nurse, kiss, hug, and shop. That's not just love. That's Hollywood. Love also spanks disciplines, love withholds, love corrects, love trains, love exhorts, love prays with, love encourages, and love admonishes. This is all part of it. Psychology, now I'm not against all psychology, just the demonic psychology. There's some great stuff in the study of the soul. But psychologists, the the demonized ones will tell you spanking will put a fear in your kid and, and they'll be afraid of you. My kids get beat like a Cherokee drum. I just want to tell you that right now, all right? And my, we spank with a cypress paddle. My girls are not afraid of that paddle. They play with the paddle. They joke about spanking all the time. It's hysterical to them. And when it's time to be spanked, I say, go get the paddle and wait by the paddle for me. And they'll go and they'll stand. And I say, you're going to get a spanking. Yes, daddy. And they'll bend over and hug my leg. And I'll bend over and I'll wear that little fanny out. Hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah. No, a spanking is three licks. And if they get two spankings, it's six licks. And if we have to ratchet it up, it's bear bonger. That's what Lydia used to call her bottom was a bonger. So we still say, if you push it again, girl, you're going to get a bear bonger spanking. I'm sorry, daddy. And then we repent, we pray, and we go on, and we're back to having fun two seconds later. My kids, they say, I'm going to hide the paddle. I'm going to throw it away. Dad, you need to spank mommy. It's a game in my house. (laughs) So apparently I'm doing it right because it does what it needs to do, and my children are... Well, they're kids, but they're pretty well behaved. And they don't fear mommy or daddy. And when, we're, when they get in trouble, they know where to march to, and they don't run and hide, and they don't put up a fight. Because when you do it biblically, it works like it's supposed to. My kids are half Cherokee. <laughs> Without proper training and help, an inexperienced mother will treat her baby in the same fashion she treated her baby doll 25 years earlier. And that's how I see a lot of parents going. They just they treat their kids like a baby doll because that's all the love they know is baby doll love. Your child is a reflection of your life and soul. Just as you can see your mother in you at times, sometimes that's cringeworthy, you're also seeing yourself in your child. See also Godly Parenting on our PodSchool website for more on all of that. Discreet. Here's another word that means self-controlled. 
In the modern English, discreet means you just don't talk about tasteless things. You're discreet about stuff. You know, when you have bodily functions, you're discreet about it. You say, I just need to use the restroom. You don't have to go into great detail about everything that's coming out of every orifice God's given you. You just say, where's the facility? You, you won't even say the restroom. Where's the facilities? And in your mind, you're going through the checklist of 90 things you got to do when you hit the facilities. That's modern English for discreet. Discreet in the King James, the original word means self-controlled, the opposite of self-indulgent. The temperate Christian desires what she should, as she should, when she should. That is the best definition of self-control. It's the Greek philosophy definition for the Greek word sophron or sophronizo. You desire what you should, when you should, as you should, and that's dictated by the Holy Ghost and the Scriptures. And when we get this working in our life, we will not live in debt. We will not live overweight. We will not be sick, rotting our teeth out of our head because we indulge in too much sugar, too much food, too much debt. Sophronizo is a fruit of the Spirit called self-control, and we must have that in our life. Discreet, careful and circumspect in one's actions or speech. This is the modern English translation. Especially in order to avoid causing offense or to gain the advantage. So you're careful about what you talk about. So the New Testament places a lot of emphasis on Christians controlling their carnal appetites because if you don't, they'll control you. And that's called being a carnal Christian or a fleshy Christian. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, I wish I could speak unto you as, as spiritual, but I could not. I had to speak unto you as unto babes. One translation says, I had to talk to you like you were just mere mortals. So when you live according to your flesh, you live as a mere mortal. And you've not been given the Holy Ghost or the Scriptures to live like every other mortal around you. In debt, overweight, depressed. I mean, that defines a typical American. We're born again. We have the eternal God on the inside of us. We should not be living like the average American. Unfortunately, too many Christians are more Americanized than they are kingdomized. They're more a disciple of Hollywood and social media than they are a disciple of the Scriptures. And it's evident because they're carnal and they don't go anywhere in the kingdom. We have to beat that. Mature Christians can control their flesh and their wants. They don't chase instant gratification, whether verbal, material, or culinary. If you can accomplish this in your life, you'll have a clean home, a debt-free lifestyle, more friends, and a thinner waistline. And who doesn't want all of that? A lack of self-control will produce a pigsty in your home, a constant financial burden of debt, and a a lack of close friends, and a large waistline. You look at America, and because America has no self-control, we have a pharmaceutical industry in the billions, almost trillions of dollars now, a lot of which could be done away with if you just had self-control. We have a storage unit industry, which I'm not against. It's the way people make money, but we have to have storage units because our homes aren't big enough to store all of our junk. Self-control would clean that up. Uh, Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, all these things exist, all the 24-hour fitness exists because people can't regulate the fork. You regulate this, you don't... If you would cut back your money on food, you could save money on the gym. You could get out of debt. See, this nation lacks self-control. We are not good at moderation. We moderate nothing. We tear down perfectly good stadiums to build $50 billion bigger stadiums because we can. And now, you know, you you can watch sports year-round because you can and totally waste your life on flesh and have nothing to show for it by the end of your life. Yeah. So that brings us to chase. We're moving along because these are the words. We're just defining these words from Titus chapter 2 so we can know what to aim for as Christians. 
These these were words and characteristics that 50, 100 years ago, the average American excelled at. Now these words, most Americans can't even define them. You ask a high schooler, define chaste, define discreet. They can't do it because they're not talked about. Chaste means to excite or elicit reverence. It means to be pure from carnality. That's what we ought to be as Christians. We ought to elicit reverence out of people. Not demand it. We just walk in. And the way we carry ourselves, people revere us. They respect us. We're pure from carnality. This word alone should sum up what a godly woman looks like. A woman will elicit reverence when she is pure from carnality. And when you're pure from carnality, you're not comfortable around carnal people. You're not comfortable around them. You're not comfortable around Christians that smoke or drink for fun. You know, so I know some folks still struggle with smoking. Uh, so I don't mean to knock that, but you know, those that don't have a problem with it, uh, we're totally against alcohol. You, if you're chased, you have a problem with that. You're not comfortable around it. It makes you uneasy that somebody could be so loose in their Christianity, they don't see a problem with it. I got a lot of Christian friends that drink and they think it's cool. They smoke cigars and think it's cool and they invite me to their reunions and I say, I, I'm sorry, I just won't be able to make that. If they ever ask me why, I'll tell them what a carnal pig I think they are. But they know I've felt that way since college. That's why they don't. Invite me too often. They think they do out of obligation when they bump into me around town. This is a continuous work, and many young believers don't even recognize carnality in them because they just come in from the world. So to review what carnality looks like, here's a brief list, all right? I just kind of came up with a list of what carnality looks like in our life. Crass joking, slander, gossip, drinking, alcohol, smoking, dirty movies, No social media restraint, constant hurt feelings, a dependence on comfort foods, ruling your marriage, bossing your husband, being a know-it-all, murmuring, running your husband down at work, complaining about your husband to anyone but God, no restraint with finances, being a busybody, being a nosy-rosy, etc., etc., etc. A young believer must be taught how to carry herself so her presence will also elicit reference from other women. So we ask the question, do people revere you because of your walk with Jesus Christ or do they cringe near you because of your rough carnality? There's, there's women I cringe to be around because I know something vulgar is going to come out of their mouth. You just, you just, it's almost like you see them coming and you just start tightening up everything, waiting for the hammer to drop. And there's other women you get around and you think, that woman knows God, I need to have her pray for me. Think about that. For me as a pastor, there's women I want to be around women of God, because I'm going to ask them to pray for me. And there's other women who are Christians that I get around and I just, and usually they're the same age. But one's carnal, one's a woman of God. They're both born again. Sometimes they're both spirit-filled. There's certain women I look forward to fellowshipping with at conferences or having into my home with my wife because I know they're holy women of God and I reverence them and I I respect and I covet their prayers. And there's other women I think I need to pray more for them because they are carnal. They how long have they been in my church? And they're still rough as a cob? That's a southern expression that just means very rough, like corn off the cob, if you don't know what a cob is. Can people even tell you are a Christian? That's a good question. Keepers at home, almost done here. And we got to go quick. This one's very, very sexist, very misogynistic, very anti-feminist. If you are married, your husband is over the home but you get to keep and manage it. That's what the Bible teaches. Other terms used of this in the Greek are governess and homemaker. 
Now, if you want to use governess that makes you feel important, it kind of pets your little feminist ego, call yourself the governess of your home. I don't care. But biblically, you're supposed to take care of the home. If you're single, you should still be a homemaker. God has built homemaking into women. I see that in my little girls. They're always playing house. You know, you don't buy your boy a kitchen set. I mean, if you do, you cast the devil out of both of you. Because no boy needs to have a kitchen set. You buy him guns. You buy him Transformers, G.I. Joe. You buy him a real gun. You buy him tomahawks to throw at the neighbor dog. That's what you buy boys. You, you don't buy boys a little kitchen set. You don't buy boys aprons. Amen. But you buy this stuff for girls because God put this in women. It's, I see this in Africa. The little girls want to make home. It's what God put in them. It takes a lot of feminism and a lot of westernization to wash that out of women, to make fun of it. So you know what the hypocrite women do, the CEOs? They go and they hire housekeepers who are always women. Hypocrite. I thought you were a feminist. I thought you were for women's lib. Why did you hire a Mexican nanny to come take care of your house and your kids? I thought you were for women's rights. Make a man do that. Well, they're not good at it. Oh, so you're not as stupid as you look. You recognize men aren't good at this thing. Amen. This, this is common sense to me. If your home is a mess, you are violating the God-breathed spiritual DNA that's in you. Any woman comfortable living in squalor has issues and should seek spiritual help. I mean, it, if your house looks like a floating cat mill, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why there's a cat woman stereotype. They've been weird for a thousand years, cat women. They're not getting any less weird just because now America wants to have sex with pets. Loving your animal is a weird deal. When you'll stop a car to save a puppy, but you won't stop the cart to witness to somebody at Walmart, you're weird and there's something not right in you. Your home is a good reflection of your soul. So how organized, how clean is your home? And it shows you that your soul is pretty clean and organized or not so much as well. Good. What a simple word. But as usual with the Greek, there's some more to it than just meets the eye. This word good means joyful, good-natured, and kind-hearted. Notice it's saying that the elder mature women who God endorses have to teach the young women how to be good. This would go to kind of say that not, all, not everybody's good. Humanism says everybody's good. Psychology starts with the baseline, everybody's good. They just need help self-actualization. This says you got to teach women how to be good. And that means you got to teach them how to be joyful. Did you know God wants people joyful? Did you know God wants women to be good-natured and tender-hearted? Think about this. Women in America today are not as tender-hearted as they used to be. Women today are very cutthroat. Uh, there's even that book that made the movie uh, Devil, The Devil Wears Prada about cutthroat businesswomen. And this is what a lot of women want to grow up to be, just cutthroat, stab you in the back with their stiletto six-inch heel. But the Bible says a godly woman, number one, is joyful and tenderhearted, and she's able to teach other women how to be joyful and tenderhearted. Sadly, Paul had to tell Titus to have the mature women in his church to teach the younger, immature women to be good, joyful, and kind-hearted. And today, it's still the same. Women need to be taught how to be tender-hearted, loving, and kind. Now, again, in kids, this is, this is it. Babies, I mean, little girls, they, they know how to be tender-hearted towards their baby dolls. They know how to nurture their baby dolls. Uh, Abigail, when she was two, she was already carrying her baby doll around on her hip. She, and, and Lydia, when she was younger and she would see mommy nurse Abigail, Lydia, Lydia was nursing her babies. 
she'd pull her shirt up and she'd nurse it on the belly button. I don't, she didn't quite get it. She said, look, I nursed it on my belly button and the baby doll be belly button nursing. They know it's in them. And you hand a, a two-year-old boy a baby doll, he chucks it. <laughs> he scalps it with his butter knife. Or he trains it to do army crawls and take down the ninjas. That's what boys do. But little girls, by God's DNA, are to be tenderhearted. But now we're having to teach adult women, you're not tenderhearted. The world has stripped the nature of God out of you. You're callous, generally speaking, in this culture. You're not as lovely as you should be. You're not as gracious as you should be. Everybody's so opinionated. Whereas as women, there ought to be this heart that you want to nurture everybody that the Lord brings you across, that you might win them to Christ through that gift that's in you, that nurturing, merciful, tenderhearted gift where you look at people and you just want to help them. You know, guys, we look at people, we want to train them to get out of this thing. But women, there's this nurturing thing that's supposed to be in you. And unfortunately, Paul said, you're going to have to teach some women how to nurture all over again because they just don't have it. They lost it. Life stripped it from them. Feminism has no nurturing in it at all. The love of God in Christ Jesus should be able to make any woman joyful and kind-hearted. By divine design, women are created to be tender, empathetic, kind, and nurturing. The opposite of good in this context is a woman who is hot-tempered, soon angry, nagging, strife-filled, cold, calloused, withholding, begrudging, and belittling, etc. So we have to find this nurturing and put it in our adult sisters in Christ. And if you parent little girls, you make sure you constantly train this up in them to teach them to be sweet, kind. You don't strip that out of them. You don't make them what they're not supposed to be. We're not up for raising tomboys. Uh, tomboy was kind of code word for the girl's going to grow up to be a lesbian. And I, I have some opinions on this. I, I have no doubt. Um, I've seen demons come upon children even in our church and begin to change their form and their demeanor. And uh, when parents got some things straightened out, those spirits left the kids and the kids straightened up and began to be what God made them to be, which was a little boy or a little girl and not the opposite. If you see your little girl tracking towards tomboy, I'd start praying and see what's going on because girls aren't meant to be tomboys. Something's speaking to them. All right, you know, you can disagree with me if you want. You're more American than you are a Christian. I've seen it. I've pastored through it. I've cast it out. And so uh, you look at divine design. It's just too easy. How do we mess this thing up? Well, we exalt culture over Bible. We think just because we've been brought up in it our whole life, it's right. It's not right just because we've been brought up in it. Number eight, obedience to husbands. We've got to move on here. I'd like to stop and teach more. I'm already going to be five minutes late on this. Obedient to their own husbands. Can't you hear Gloria Steinem just screaming right now? That's the big feminist, if you don't know who Gloria Steinem is. She went and married, hypocrite. She married a man. Yeah, what? Hypocrite. The word for obedient here is a Greek military term, hupotasso which means to arrange troop divisions under a commanding leader. Hupotasso is used many times in the New Testament, showing that our language is very aggressive as Christians. Wives, your husband is your commanding leader. Obey him in the Lord, we would say, as the Bible says. Some wives want to look up to every man but their own. They have more respect for every other man but the one they married. This is possibly due to the sin of familiarity. Guard your hearts towards your husband. Keep it right. He was the last man you could get to marry you, and you may not be able to find another. And let's face it, by now you've got some high mileage with a lot of extra baggage. So the odds of you getting somebody to remarry you this late in life is pretty slim to none. So 
guard the husband of your youth, as the Bible says. Hupotasso also means a voluntary attitude of giving in and cooperating, assuming responsibilities and carrying a burden. Titus 2.5 the Amplified says, adapting and subordinating themselves to their husbands. This has to be taught, especially in America because of the feminist spirit that is so strongly here. In Christ, we're all equal, but in the natural, we are not. In Christ, we're all equal in here, but spiritually speaking, we're not equal. I'm the pastor. I'm the one promoted. There's neither male nor female in Christ, but in the natural, there is, and there's strengths that we have and weaknesses we have, and we have to recognize that. In the marriage, you're equal in the spirit, but not when it comes to authority, and we understand that when we stop to be spiritual. Your attitude must be one of giving in, servitude, cooperation, and adaptation. That's the job of the wife. And in that regard, I think she's more fearfully and wonderfully made than a man because she must adapt to man's stubborn, blockheaded rigidity, which all of our men have, and we are, and we men say, oh, me. And the wives have to adapt around all that goofiness. I, my wife, I needed something. I left my Bible at home this morning, so I text. I called my wife. She didn't answer, which really irritated me because I needed my Bible, and I know she has an Apple Watch, so if I call her, it should be coming up on her watch. And she should be answering me, especially she should know I need my Bible. Of course, she has a child she's taking care of. I have the other one. So then I text her. I said, I need you to call me and I need you to answer your phone. And I need you to get my Bible. So Lydia brings me my Bible. And I said, where's your Apple Watch? She said, I wasn't wearing it. And I was getting dressed and getting the other daughter dressed. She said, but I know it makes you feel good to vent on me. So vent. (laughs) That is adaptation. I said, you're right. Your job is to make me feel good. And I feel much better. Thank you. I love you. Marched up to my office and studied my Bible. (laughs) If at this point your mind is racing with reasons why this will never work because of your husband, you're telling off on yourself. You're clearly not a woman who prays for her husband every day. You have strengthened the strongholds of your mind with lame excuses. Your marriage will succeed or fail based on your prayers, wife. Praying wives have nothing to complain to man about. When you pray and complain to God, there's nothing left to complain about. You got it off your chest. Number nine, and here's the most critical out of all of it, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Paul lays out these criteria for mature women to train young women and for mature men to train young men so that we as Christians live lives that don't blaspheme the word and the doctrine of our Lord and Savior. This lets us know that blasphemy isn't just cussing and saying foul words with our mouth, but blasphemy is a lifestyle. And when you invoke the name of Jesus Christ upon your life and brag about well, how, what a strong Christian you are and your little Facebook thing says Christian, you know, your religious affiliation is Christian, and then your posts have beer and cussing and foul jokes and filthiness, you're blasphemous. The word blasphemy is a Hebraic word, and it means to screw holes and to per- perforate and puncture. And when we live filthy, that's what we do. We take the name of Jesus and we stab holes in it so his name no longer holds water to anybody. What's the number one reason Christians, people, excuse me, tell me, we all know the answer. Why don't people want to go to church? Hypocrites. That means they're watching the blasphemous lifestyles of folks that do come to church. Now, we would argue church is the best place for hypocrites, but it is also their testimony that keeps other people away. So this is the most pointed statement of the whole passage. Realize if you resist change and refuse to grow in Christ, the lifestyle you're choosing to live is called blasphemous. Blasphemy isn't just something you do with words. It can also be how you live. Some Christian women live blasphemous lives. Paul concludes this passage by saying a carnal Christian woman is guilty of blaspheming God's word. That's pretty, it's a pretty low blow. It's a hard hit. 
It's possible to have a mind knowing the word, but a lifestyle still blaspheming God. So we want to avoid that. If you love God and you're thankful for your salvation, you must mature in Christ. All right, so that concludes this lesson. Next week, we're going to start another little subsection called servanthood and uh, what it means to be a servant of God. And we have two lessons on the handmaidens of the Lord. Maybe maybe we can pile it down to one. And then I'm going to teach a lesson on being a gracious, soft woman. Because America is not known for its gracious, soft women. You think about most of your famous female preachers, they all sound like they're chain smokers and that they got a keychain wallet in their back pocket. (laughs) Praise the Lord, women. We're here to study the Bible today. All right, Sal. After this, are we getting a smoke break? Uh, I'm sorry. When I think about a godly woman, I think of someone who's gracious and lovely who will go to prayer, intercede, and pour, pour in the oil and the wine when you're wounded, not someone who's ready to arm wrestle you and spit in your face at the same time. It's American culture. It's wicked. It is stripping the church of its power. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help us. Help our wives. Help our sisters in Christ. Help our daughters to be holy, tightest two women of God, being everything you've made and designed them to be. I thank you, Lord, for these lessons. Bless all those that listen. In Jesus' name, amen.